Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. For tuning in to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal, I'm Melanie Cogdell, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. It's November 2020, and you're listening to Episode 209, which is a discussion about the recently released book from Rachel Hollis called Didn't See That Coming, Putting Life Back Together When Your World Falls Apart. On this episode, I'm joined by Anne Kennedy, who has an MDiv and is the author of the newly released and updated Nailed It! 365 Sarcastic Devotions for Angry, Worn-Out People. Anne blogs about current events and theological trends at Preventing Grace on Pathios.com. Anne has written an online exclusive book review for the Christian Research Journal, and her review is called She Who Has Eyes, Let Her See!, a look at Didn't See That Coming by Rachel Hollis. And you can read her review free online at our website, equip.org. Anne, it's good to have you on. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, we did do a podcast previously about Rachel Hollis, so people can go back and listen to that episode where we kind of talked about who she was and why she's so enormously popular. I mean, you know, she was covered by the New York Times. But some major things happened to her since that podcast that we did mention in a podcast after that, where we're kind of catching up with some of these women teachers in evangelicalism, like Jen Hatmaker, Glennon Doyle, and Rachel Hollis. And so in that episode, Anne mentioned that she is in the process of getting a divorce. And so during this time, she has come out with a new book that was just released in September 2020. And Rachel's book is called Didn't See That Coming putting life back together when your world falls apart. And so for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with Rachel Hollis, and especially, you know, the part of her, I don't even know if I would characterize it as ministry as much as she's a motivational speaker speaking about, you know, working on yourself and working on your marriage. Can you please tell our listeners, give us some background on who she is and how she got to where she is right now, which is this new book. Rachel, yeah, she's a motivational speaker, kind of a self-help celebrity who went viral at one point. I had forgotten about this a while ago, but she's from Weed Patch, California, and she's the daughter of a Pentecostal sort of preacher. I don't know the level of his, you know, what he really was in the church. And she had kind of a traumatic childhood and ran away to L.A. to become a star. And she started a company of her own, sort of a, an event planning company, and met her husband, Dave. And she had a viral 
this is always how it is. You have a blog post go viral or something like that. And she took a picture of herself and put it on Instagram in 2015. The viral bikini photograph that encourages others to share their stretch marks. So she had that and that launched her kind of into the spotlight, that one picture. And from there, she has built a, you know, a huge empire called the Hollis Company. I think it's, yeah. And she and her husband, Dave, were co-CEOs of that, I think, or he was in charge of the running of it. And from that, she wrote Girl, Wash Your Face first and Girl, Stop Apologizing, both of which were bestsellers. And then she has a brand she calls Rise. She does conferences. She and her husband, Dave, did a marriage conference, I think last year, where they charged $1,000 to get in before hotel or meals or anything like that, and where they gave people advice about how to stay married. And so she's just huge on social media. She's a podcast, and she's just in the limelight in this sort of you know group of people who really influence the way mostly white, I would say, middle-class American women think and feel about themselves. Well, I just wanted to mention to our listeners that if you go back the specific episode where we talked in depth about, you know, her theology is episode 136. If you want to go back and listen to that one to give you more background on who Rachel Hollis is. But as I mentioned a few moments ago, since that time, she announced that she was getting a divorce, which I'm sure kind of, you know, is the impetus for her book title. Didn't see that coming. So this is a review of her book. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about her current book? So yeah, the book is about how to cope in a time of grief or trial. She, I think there's, there's been a lot of jokes made about the title, mainly that she probably did see it coming because it, it seems like she's the one that initiated the divorce. But in terms of COVID, which she brings up several times in the book, none of us expected COVID. Nobody saw COVID coming, at least not the kind of people who would be reading this book. So she, uh, you know, life is difficult. She's basically acknowledging that life is difficult. And the book is um, her being a guide, she calls herself a Sherpa at one point, to guide you over a mountain of grief. It's you getting back on track after a disaster and recovering your sense of who you are and what's important in your life. So it's just a basic self-help. It's it's even much lighter, I would say, than Girl, Wash Your Face. It's just a real quick, maybe even a four-hour read and it's not real substantive, but it does, it's a, kind of an acknowledgement that bad things do happen in the world. So you were mentioning that, you know, she's talking about her divorce and of course COVID. What is she saying about suffering? So does she have a specific theology of suffering? She doesn't really have a theology of suffering, but In every book that she's written, she has said, you know, life is hard. And so you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get going, which I think is a little bit countercultural right now in terms of 
how much the victim culture has kind of taken over the way people think about themselves and the importance of pain and being a person who experiences pain as a part of your identity. She is really, she really pushes back on that hard. I wouldn't say it's a theological pushback, but a sort of a, you know, a world, a cl- even a class um, or worldview that she has. So you should not, uh, you should take responsibility for who you are in your own happiness and just deal. But in this book, she does, you know, a little bit more acknowledge that suffering is part of life. And she spends a little bit more time talking about death. And this is particularly interesting. I wanted to quote a section here because this is as close as she gets to the question of evil at all. So let me read what she says. Before quarantine, I got lulled into a false sense of control because I had freedom over my life and my daily routine. I could go to the grocery store, to my favorite coffee shop, or on a dinner date with my friends whenever I wanted. And since I'm an adult and I'm privileged to live in a country that doesn't control my day-to-day life, nobody else had a say in what I did. But the truth is, we were never really in control because we were never truly in control of life. If you've ever lost a loved one without warning, then you know that you are not in control. If you've ever experienced getting laid off or losing your business, despite the fact that you put your heart and soul into the effort, then you know you are not in control. And here's the line I thought was really interesting. If your partner has ever cheated on you or you've made a personal mistake that tore your foundations away or created a loss of love, then you know that you are not in control of the actions of others either. If you or someone you love has gotten gravely ill, then you understand that you are not in control. So I thought that was sort of an interesting, well, the word mistake really came out to me because I would say that suffering is produced by the evil of humanity. We are wicked and we are the reason that bad things happen, either directly or indirectly. And I like that line, you've ever made a a personal mistake that tore your foundations away that's not really a mistake usually. That's usually something that you did on purpose. And so she doesn't really have the facility to get to the heart of why things are rough. And so that's why throughout the book, she's real quick to, you just need to get over it. You need to move on. You need to get back on track to enacting who you are. Now you said that one of the things that she did in terms of her motivational speaking was this marriage conference that sounds quite pricey with her husband. Does she ever not like people want to know the details? Well, sometimes people want to know the details, but it's not appropriate for someone to know the details of a marriage unraveling. But does she ever really discuss like, oh, I mean, how does she acknowledge going from, boy, a year ago, I was charging you a thousand dollars for marriage conferences to now I'm actually getting a divorce? She doesn't ever address it. It's really interesting. In fact, the only way that I know that she initiated the divorce is because of listening to podcasts by him. He's the one that says that it was her idea. And neither of them give a reason. Um, Doesn't seem like there was adultery or anything like that. So it's interesting. The fact of her writing this book, the timeline of her writing this book is really interesting because it seems like she probably did see her own divorce coming down the line. She had the draft of this book done early on in COVID and the edits she did post breaking up with her husband. So 
I found a really interesting post of somebody who carefully combed through all her social media because I can't see her on Instagram anymore. I've been blocked. And this person kind of worked through the timeline. They were basically broken up through April and May, but they were still posting on Instagram as if there were no problems at all. And they were very much in love with each other. So I think that really a lot of people have cried foul on her. And I watched a podcast this morning where she she was really hurt by that, that he's gotten much better treatment from female followers than she has. I think it's because people are sort of grossed out by the lag that obviously she broke up with him. And then she's marketing this book as if she really has been wounded when she's the perpetrator in some way or another. You're listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest is Anne Kennedy. She has written an online exclusive book review for the Christian Research Journal. It's about Rachel Hollis's new book, and it's called She Who Has Eyes Let Her See, A Look At Didn't See That Coming by Rachel Hollis. And you can read Anne's review free online at our website, equip.org. In addition, the holidays is coming up soon. So this is a great way in which you can get the word out about the Christian Research Journal by giving a gift subscription to someone, especially if you already have a subscription. You can easily do that online at a website, equip.org. A gift subscription is $33.50. And we have a lot of great articles that are coming up, including our cover story that's written by Anne's husband, Matt Kennedy. And it's about how to respond to parents who change their theology when their kids come out as LGBTQ. You don't want to miss that, so you want to subscribe at equip.org. But also, we'd like for you to partner with us by giving us a tip. If you can't subscribe right now, it's not in your budget, easily give us a tip of $3, $5, $10. And how you do that is go to equip.org, go to magazine at the drop-down menu. You'll see Postmodern Realities Podcast. Click on that, and at any landing page for any episode, you can go ahead and open that up, and you can see a link where you can give us a tip. Plus, if you're new to this podcast, you can catch up on all the different episodes that we've had, episodes one all the way to 208. And of course, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate and review our podcast so other people can find our podcast. And you can do that easily, probably best on Apple Podcasts if you go there and search for Postmodern Realities. You can give us a starred review or you can give us a written review, which we'd really appreciate. And the best way to get the word out is just tell a friend about this podcast. And thanks for all the way you partner with us. Well, we're talking about reviewing this book and in talking about someone's personal life, it's not meant to be a salacious thing, but we do want to give people discernment because how do we as Christians move through our lives in relationship with others, especially for those of us that are married, that God has called to marriage, that is such a sacred union as you know is expressed in scripture. And so this is important, especially if someone is giving marital advice that claims to be a Christian, that, you know, how people are looking to that person for biblical advice, for advice of how to hopefully follow God in this. But it seems like her advice is quite light. So in continuing on with this theme, I want to know in the book, what does she say about the person's, you know, their identity, how they see themselves? 
in relationship to suffering in their relationships that might be crumbling. So this was really interesting. She had a very brief preface and an acknowledgement that bad things happen to people. And then the very first chapter of the book is all about your new identity in suffering. There's not a really big acknowledgement of what suffering is like other than, yeah, it's really bad. It's terrible. She uses some expletives to describe it. And then it's like, okay, you're done with that. Now get your life together. And the way that you get your life together is to quickly land on your own identity. That's your foundation point, really. So she takes the reader very quickly through this sort of, um, you had an identity that was taken away from you. You want an identity that is denied to you. These are different kinds of suffering. You choose an identity, but now you no longer want it. Or someone else chose an identity for you, and that isn't really who you are. So as you're getting over the bad thing that happened to you, you just need to work through these questions about yourself and you'll be able to just figure it out and move forward, which is the most important thing that you can do. I thought it was really, (laughs) it's a huge assumption that many people would be able to do this and that it would be helpful to do it. It's like a, a weird mixture between the sort of essential self that you're seeing everywhere. The idea that there's a, a golden gem down there at the bottom of you, you just need to uncover it. That mixed with you need to craft your best self and you're remaking yourself all the time. Every day is a new you. The immediate tidal wave of emphasis on you yourself in the middle of the suffering and you getting out of it, I thought was, it felt a little bit heartless actually, but I think that it points to the fact that for her, who you are, your identity is a salvation issue. If you don't know who you are and you're not improving yourself and making yourself better, you aren't being saved. Like you're, it's, you're not living into the gospel as she would see it. And that's why it's so pressing for her. She has to move you along because you might, you know, you might die not knowing who you really are. And I feel um, it's an exhausting chapter And I think it's deeply not Christian, but it is also very telling about how she conceives of the person and what she thinks human people are for. So what does she exactly say is her identity? I mean, it sounds a lot of this find your true self stuff sounds so vague to me. I mean, what is she saying that she's trying to find and has she actually found it? Did she say that? Because she says she didn't see it coming. Maybe it's COVID. But does she tell you how she's put her life back together and what identity she has claimed? She never really says, you know, what her about her own identity. But she has at the end of every chapter a little section called um, what helped me get over this thing. So she does kind of present herself as somebody who has, you know, been there, done that. I've, had, I've done my divorce and I'm fine now. I'm now an awesome parent. And I'm a, a leader of a company. I'm an entrepreneur. And that's kind of how she puts herself forward. You know, she says over and over, it doesn't matter at all who you who you think you are or what you want to be. As long as you know what that is and do it, then you're good. So the main moral claim is just that you have to figure it out. Um, not that it could be any particular thing. Um, yeah, that was 
that was it. <laughs> so you talk about her expression that she says that people just need to show up. So what does she mean that you need to show up and how does she show up? This chapter was kind of heartbreaking because in um, one of the chapters, it's about um, not bailing on the people that really matter to you. And of course, I can't remember the name of that chapter right now. Uh, Oh, it's the chapter is called show up. And it's about not lying down and dying, basically get up. Every time you fall down, get up, get up, get up. And first of all, I thought it was really interesting that she had this chapter where she tells people that they need to really be there for the people that matter to them. But she's also writing this chapter in the middle of a divorce that she uh, acknowledges that she chose this knowing that it would hurt. That's her word, that it would hurt all of the people in her life but that it was necessary for her to do this because she needs to be who she is. So that was really interesting. I think she insists that you have to be there for people, but then it's okay in some cases not to be there for people. The thing that really bothered me though, was she talked about how when her brother died, her parents just gave up. They did not try to keep the family together. She and her sister moved out and they never had a good family meal or anything Christmas ever again, really. And she moved to LA and made her own way in the world. And she uses that as an example of the bad thing that they did and how you, in contrast, when something bad happens to you, you must be there for your kids, no matter what happens. And she goes so far as to say that you should even fake it if you're not okay. If you're so unglued, you just put a good face on it and deal because that's unfair to your children. And I thought that was interesting and also potentially a really bad idea. I, of course, don't recommend not parenting your children or, you know, like a lot of it's easy to sort of make your children into the parents if you're really not coping. And of course, that's a really, really bad idea. But she went so far the other way to this sort of, you be a good leader, you be happy, you don't let your kids see that you're not okay ever, that I I was really disturbed. I think it is actually really important for children to see their parents not able to deal and then to throw themselves on the mercy of Christ and to be saved, even in the middle of a complicating or a terrible situation. So, you know, if your children never see you cry if they never see that you don't know what to do next, if they never see the reality of who you are as a person, I think that's a way overcorrection that can be really damaging to children as well. And she doesn't acknowledge that at all. Does she give her readers anything specific to do besides, you know, it sounds like put on this brave face if you have suffering, I mean, if you have extreme suffering, I think sometimes people want to know, well, how do I handle that? I mean, what are the things that I need to acknowledge in order to face suffering? Does she really give you any tips on how to face the suffering? She says over and over again that you should deal with it, you know, go to therapy, do whatever you need to do. 
but she the the chapter that was the best chapter i think was about habits she's gone on about this in other books as well she's very very big that you should be building functional habits against the day of catastrophe and that's absolutely true because if you can't cope um it's bit and you have to go on autopilot for a while and your autopilot is really dysfunctional and it includes eating all the wrong things and drinking way too much and not taking a walk uh, ever, <laughs> you're really not going to be okay for real. And so she lays out how and why habits are a really, really good way to cope. And I think that that's really true. I found that absolutely true in COVID. The people I know who already had good disciplines, I like the word discipline better than habit, but if you have disciplined yourself in prayer and in church and in the, the caring for the body and the soul, when COVID hits, then you're not completely on the ground. And I know that that's true in our own church. People who had already disciplined themselves before COVID are doing better than the people who hadn't because once a bad thing happens, it's almost impossible to start something good. So that's very helpful. But of course, if you're in the middle of a bad thing, it's too late to start the habit. And in some sense, it feels like she's kind of saying, well, too late for you. <laughs> she doesn't actually say that. She gives advice for how you can, how you can get up when you've fallen down uh, day by day. But it's all very rah-rah. It doesn't provide any deeper meaning or motivation for why you should do that. Well, one thing about all of her books and her speaking engagements is they are aimed or had been in the past to Christian women. So does she, and she's, you know, her books are usually in the religious section of a bookstore. So in this book, didn't see that coming. Does she mention God? How does she talk about God? Does she mention scripture, any scripture that has ministered to her during this process? If it's possible, this book has less mentions of God than even previous ones did, which didn't really have any. The only place where faith comes into it is at the very, very end when she again, Richard, she is the main theme through the book is the suicide of her brother when she was, I think, 14. So a very traumatic time. And she was the one that found him. She was home alone with him when he killed himself. And so she found him dead. And then she she had to call 911 and she tells the story that the first thing apparently that she cried out to the 911 person was is he in hell and she doesn't remember saying that but she was just in such shock in the aftermath and the after the funeral and their family was kind of going through notes and cards that people had sent she discovered that this 911 person had sent her a card um, telling her, you know, that she was praying for her and that she should know that her, that her brother was not in hell. She could rest assured that he um, had not gone to hell. And that was it. And then she moved on to a sort of cheerleading about how the reason her brother died is because he had no hope and you need to have hope or your life will have no meaning and you need to figure out where your hope lies. It was really interesting sort of tragic irony that at that moment when she is talking about hope, when she could have turned towards Christ, because as 
you said these are books marketed to Christian women. She doesn't know that that's the person to whom she could call. So it's a very, it's a deeply unchristian book. I wouldn't maybe, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that it's anti-Christian, but it's deeply not Christian. It doesn't reflect in any way a biblical worldview. It doesn't offer women the hope that they would need to actually cope in a time of real suffering at all. And she just completely brushes over the whole question of death as a reality. So it found it very, very discouraging. Well, as I looked at different reviews that were positive about the book on Amazon, I mean, a typical review that was positive was saying, this is such a good read. There's so much great transferable advice. That's really helped me in my trauma. And it's, you know, blessing me and genuine words of wisdom and how do we thrive in adversity. So that's very interesting to me, given that it's curious that she doesn't really point you to Christ in any kind of way. So, you know, there could be some people listening that are, you know, have really appreciated and benefited. They feel like they've benefited from Rachel Hollis's books. But, you know, we just, you're pointing out that it's not really pointing you to Christ. It's not talking about scripture in any way. So could you give us a biblical view of suffering? Because I agree with you, you know, and I, what you're saying about COVID, I think one of the things that many Christians don't have that they need to have is a theology of suffering, a biblical theology of suffering, because we live in a fallen world. So suffering will come to us in some form or another at some point. So what would be a biblical view of suffering in contrast to what Rachel Hollis is giving, which sounds extremely vague to me. Well, first of all, I should say that I was reading this book, Rachel Hollis's book, at the same time that I was reading a really good book about suffering, Christian suffering, by Wendy Alsup called Companions in Suffering. And if you're looking for a really good, con- if you've read Rachel Hollis's book and you're a little bit unsure, you could go and read Wendy's book because she does lay out a really clear, very beautiful picture of what it's like to suffer and how Christians come together to help each other in times of suffering. But I just can't recommend that one enough. But the thing that really strikes me in the, the question of hope at the end of the book was that COVID, there are two ways of living through COVID or through any traumatic event. There, There's the way of being in the flesh, in the world, and then there's the way of being in the spirit and in Christ. And if you are in the world and you don't have Christ, well, first of all, you have to suck the marrow out of life. You have to live life to the fullest now because that's all there is. You have to do what Rachel Hollis says because that's all you're going to get. And you'll miss out if you miss anything. So COVID any setback that's put in your way is is kind of intolerable and you do need to do whatever you can to get over it. That's the way of the world. But for the Christian, the great thing about suffering, there's two great things. One, it brings you into participation in the way of Christ. You get to walk in the way of the cross. You get to experience the kind of things that Jesus experienced on our behalf. So he pours himself and his suffering into us and then we can pour ours back into him. And it's um, 
full measure, pressed down, shaken together. It overflows into the world. And it's beautiful, first of all, and it's not lost. And that's the second important thing about Christian suffering is that this world is a shadow, a veil, a wilderness. It's not all there is. It's not even the best part of what there is. And so you can miss out on all the experiences that you maybe wanted. You can get sick. You can lose everything. And none of it is actually lost because Jesus holds all of it in himself. So if you're looking for hope and you're disappointed in COVID and you didn't get your act together, well, first you go to Christ and he gives you your identity. He tells you who you are. He tells you what he wants you to do. He brings you into his own way and he makes all of the suffering that you have have meaning. And even he might even show you some of that meaning as you go along, although you'll know more about it later. The Christian in suffering is so rich, so full of Christ. There's no comparison, really, to the vision that Rachel Hollis offers. Hers is just so paltry and and also cruel because, I mean, I know people who are suffering in COVID and they can't get up. And, you know, they've fallen down and in some sense, some of them will never get back to the place where they were. But that doesn't matter because God has made them his own and he loves them. They are precious to him. They're not going to be lost. Um, He's gathering up all of the things that they lost and keeping them safe forever. And yeah, if you're tired, (laughs) you don't have to you know, you should try, you should follow Jesus, but that is a kindly and a merciful way rather than this um, harsh, pull yourself together reality that she paints in this book. You know, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul over and over again talks about us sharing in Christ's sufferings and even in Second Corinthians, abundantly sharing in his sufferings. Does she at all mention sharing in the sufferings of Christ, because through that, like you were saying, we know, you know, Paul talks about, we know the power of his resurrection. We've taken up our cross to follow him and that he's called us to share in these sufferings. Does she even mention that at all? No, not even a little bit. No, she never once uses the name Jesus. I think she mentions the word God a few times, but no, she doesn't have any. And, and um, there's a deep contradiction in what she says because she, on the one hand, you know, wants people to be good people and take care of each other and show up for each other. And on the other hand, she wants everybody to follow their own dreams to the uttermost. And those two things can't go together. You know, the only person who can really bring you into real community with, with other people is Christ And the way that he heals you is by bringing you into community with other people who belong to you. So you can't enact her vision and end up with relationships that will be meaningful to you or that will help you and heal you along the way. Does she say anything about the church? Because one thing that we also know is that, you know, we're part of this community in our local congregations. I mean, we're part of the church worldwide, of course, but for us particularly, everybody has 
a community that they're involved in their church. And through that, we, you know, weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We walk alongside other believers in the midst of their suffering and help them and encourage them and so forth. So does she even talk about a community or any kind of community or church at all as a place where she's finding encouragement and getting pointed to the gospel and Jesus? I don't even think she mentions that in past books, she's mentioned that she goes to church or her family goes to church, but she didn't do that this time. She may at some point, I didn't, it didn't jump out at me mention, you know, she mentions things that you should do therapy, prayer. And she did at one point say that she prayed, um, but she didn't really say, you know, what that looked like or who was the object of those prayers. So no, she doesn't have any idea of the church, a community of believers. She talks a lot about her team and those people being really important and meaningful to her, but she gets to choose those people, of course. And that's one important difference is that if you go to church, you shouldn't be picking the people who are bonded to you through salvation. So no, she just doesn't have any ecclesiology. She doesn't have any Christology. She doesn't have any Christian vision at all. Well, thanks, Anne, for always diving into these books for us to help us unpack them because I think that there are a lot of Christian women as we've found as you know as I've talked to you is so many of these books become mega bestsellers so there are people reading them and recommending them to friends and we should really be have some concern especially if these are Christians who are claiming to be Christians and they're not pointing us to biblical truth. Well, finally, on a much lighter note uh, than suffering, I have some fun rapid fire questions for Anne. So Anne, what's your favorite pie for dessert at Thanksgiving? If in fact you serve pie? Oh, I do serve pie. I serve uh, pumpkin and apple and I think both are delicious, but my favorite is the apple. I would agree with you on that. Now it's November, but you know, we just, past the end of October. So I think because you have a lot of children, people probably are interested to know trick or treat. Now let's say it's not COVID trick or treat, trick or trunk at church or pass altogether. We do a trunk and treat at church. And then we do afterwards usually go around our neighborhood. And, um, and of course a lot of people think that that's really wicked, but I found that it's actually the one time of the year when everybody goes outside and greets and says hello to each other and um, makes eye contact. So for me, it feels a little bit missionary and I, I believe in candy. So uh, we just do all of it and we do Reformation Day on the same day. I agree. I remember when my kids were little, I was, we were kind of struggling. Should we do this or not do this? And a leader in our church at the time said, you know, it's the one time of year when everybody comes out. And I find that's true. People come with their whole families, especially if they have little kids and you can see them. Um, what is your favorite color? Oh, wow. Well, in general, I think red is my favorite color. And would you rather go tent camping in the woods or stay at a five-star hotel? Oh, goodness. That's tough. I mean, I think both of those would be so great. I'd like to tent camp and then end at a five-star hotel <laughs> for the last two days. And do you guys have any specific holiday tradition that your family does? It doesn't necessarily have to be a spiritual tradition, but 
something that you guys do during the holidays, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas or New Year's? We celebrate St. Nicholas Day. Uh, we celebrate Christmas and Thanksgiving and all that. But on St. Nicholas Day, St. Nicholas, uh, the Bishop St. Nicholas comes to our church. Somebody dresses up as St. Nicholas and brings chocolate coins. And my kids put their shoes in front of the fire. And um, St. Nicholas always brings them something interesting in their shoes. I've never heard of that. What is St. Nicholas Day? It's December 6th, and it's sort of, it's a much bigger deal in Germany and Holland and um, Switzerland, I think. And I mean, it's not supposed to be the same thing as Christmas, but St. Nicholas comes on a donkey. You leave out a turnip for his donkey, and it's a sort of a spinoff of the bishop of, you know, the ancient times, who the story that he gave the dowry for some impoverished young ladies who were going to be sold uh, away. Um, and he gave the money that was needed so that they could have a proper marriage. And so all over Europe, children put their shoes in front of the fireplace and then um, they get chocolate coins. And it's a very Christmassy, but it's several weeks earlier and um, it's just really fun. Very interesting. Well, thanks, Anne, for being on the Postmodern Realities Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest has been Anne Kennedy, who has written an online exclusive book review for the Christian Research Journal. You can read it for free at our website, equip.org. And her book review is called She Who Has Eyes, Let Her See, a look at Didn't See That Coming by Rachel Hollis. And again, you can read it for free online at our website, equip.org. We'd like to hear from you, so connect with us on social media. Like the Bible Answer Man Facebook page and follow CRI, Christian Research Journal, Hank Hanegraaff, and the Bible Answer Man on Twitter. And please subscribe to the Bible Answer Man channel on YouTube. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Postmodern Realities Podcast on iTunes. And please rate and review our podcast when you rate and review our podcast, it helps others see our content. And please share this episode on your social media accounts. Be sure you tune in daily to the Bible Answer Man broadcast hosted by CRI President Hank Hanegraaff, who answers your questions live on air. To ask Hank a question, call 888-ASK-HANK, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. In addition, head to iTunes and subscribe to Hank Unplugged, Hank's audio podcast. Follow Hank off the grid where he has in-depth conversations with some of the brightest minds discussing topics you care about. So until our next Christian Research Journal author conversation, thanks for listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast. Mm-hmm.